the major impact is uh, uh, the it affects the animal performance um, and the cattle with liver abscesses uh, don't eat as much uh, don't gain as much and their feed efficiency is uh, reduced and that is the really uh, major impact on the uh, on the uh, on the uh, the economics of the feedlot or the beef industry uh, in addition to that uh, of uh, uh, the animal performance, it also impacts on uh, the carcass yield. And there is uh, sometimes the liver abscesses lead to adhesions uh, to the surrounding organs and tissues. And there is a lot of trimming that needs, needs to be done to get rid of the uh, abscess liver. And that, le that, le that leads to uh, reduced carcass yield. Uh, and sometimes it does affect the uh, the 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 quality of the beef too. Uh, so so economically, uh, it affects uh, uh, you know one there's liver condemnation. Second is animal performance is affected, and second it impacts on the carcass yield. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist here at Iowa State University. And our guest today is from Kansas State University, Dr. T.G. Nagaraja is a professor of microbiology at K-State. He has a Bachelor of Veterinary Science and a Master's in Veterinary Microbiology. His research interest is in the field of gut microbiology of animals, particularly the rumen of cattle. His investigations have focused on the role of microbes in ruminal function and dysfunction, particularly in animals fed high grain diets. He uses a blend of both basic and applied studies and collaborates extensively with epidemiologists, food microbiologists, molecular biologists, production man animal specialists, ruminant nutritionists, and pathologists. So welcome to the show, TG. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, you and I definitely kind of run in some of the same circles. So we see each other occasionally at meetings. And uh, one of the things that we both have in common is a topic I know we're going to talk a lot about today. But before we get to that, why don't we start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your story? How did you get to where you are today and to have this important role in the beef industry? I'll be happy to, Stephanie. Uh, I came to uh, this country in 1972, uh, right after I completed my master's in veterinary microbiology. And in fact, uh, uh, one of the reasons I came to K-State was uh, when I did my master's uh, uh, degree, I was asked to give a seminar and I chose the topic of bloat in cattle. Uh, and in fact, the, the title of that, study, the, uh, that seminar was Role of Rumen Microbes in Bloat. 
believe it or not, that was my very first kind of a public presentation to a group of people. Uh, I was profusely sweating. <laughs> I can I still remember that. And when I uh, went into the literature search on the topic, I found most of the studies came from Kansas State University. And in fact, the, the, the person who did the work, who passed away a long time ago, uh, and who, who was my mentor when I came to this country, is Earl Bartley. Uh, he was a dairy cattle nutritionist and has done a, a lot of work on liver apps, uh, excuse me, on bloat. And in fact, uh, the, the drug we use uh, to control bloat uh, called uh, uh, bloat guard, which has uh, uh, the ingredient paloxylene, which is a detergent, uh, still widely used in the industry uh, for control of legume bloat. And he was the one who discovered that uh, compound uh, as a treatment for bloat and as well as prevention. So that was the reason why I applied to K-State to do my PhD. And I came to this country in uh, 72. Uh, I was a graduate student in biology. Uh, that, that's where the microbiology department is located in this, in this university. And my research was on uh, rumen, rumen microbes. So I worked with both the microbiology department as well as uh, the dairy science, which then became part of animal science. Uh, worked with uh, dairy science. That way I had uh, two major professors, one a microbiologist, another a nutritionist. As you would know very well, ruminant nutrition is a combination of nutrition and microbiology. So I got best of both worlds. And uh, so that's how I started my uh, PhD career at K-State and finished my uh, PhD degree in 1979. Uh, and then I was offered, a, uh, there was a position that was open uh, for a rumen microbiologist in the Department of Animal Sciences. And I applied and uh, that's how I stayed in this country. Uh, so that, that's how my research career started, actually, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, 70s, long time ago. So you're so right. We always teach students that as ruminant nutritionists, we're really feeding the bugs, right? And of course, feeding the microbiome is the better way to say that, because everything that we do to the ruminant animal is first affected by whatever changes happens to that rumen microbiome. And so I think that's that's the, that's it. That's the crux of rumen and nutrition, right? How do we not screw up what's going on in the rumen as we feed the, the rumen and animal? Did you have a livestock background before you came to the U.S. or was that your first experience? You know, I came from a city, uh, a city called Bangalore in India, and uh, I only had a cat as a pet one time. Uh, and uh, my exposure to cattle would, was in, in, the, in the veterinary school. Uh, and uh, in a food animal medicine was not that well advanced in, the, in India at the time. So I had a minimal exposure and had no concept, believe it or not, had no concept of beef cattle at all. <laughs> so cattle in India was mainly uh, or exclusively for milk production. So when I came to this country, uh, I realized the uh, the importance of beef cattle and the importance of beef industry, particularly beef cattle industry, particularly in the state of Kansas, which is, uh, as you may know, is the number one agriculture commodity uh, in, in Kansas. 
Yeah, absolutely. Kansas is definitely one of our powerhouse states when it comes to beef production. I think it's so important for people to understand, because I see this all the time as an animal science professor, and I'm sure you see this all the time at K-State, we increasingly get students who come in who have less and less agricultural background and livestock experience. And it's so important to you know not think anything less of those kids, right? Because they might be some of the ones that are the most open-minded about the opportunities. They're most eager and ready to learn. Oftentimes they don't come with some of the bad habits that we might've learned if we did grow up with cattle, <laughs> um, like cattle handling and other things. So they're, so they're so fun. And it's so cool to see somebody like yourself who did not grow up on a beef operation, but has now had such impact on modern beef production here in the US uh, because of what we're going to talk about next. So let's talk about kind of if we were if we were going to say in one sentence uh, what your research career was, we could probably say he was the guy that helped us learn a lot about liver abscesses. Well, uh, you know, I started working on liver abscess in the uh, mid 80s. In, in fact, uh, you know, that's sort of an interesting story. And I use this as an example to tell uh, uh, graduate students when I teach a graduate course. Uh, my mentor, Earl Bartley, was teaching a course, a graduate course called Rumen Metabolism. Uh, and he passed away uh, in 1983. And uh, I, I was just hired uh, uh, two years ago uh, to, as an assistant professor in uh, Rumen Microbiology. Uh, and so the head of the department asked, you know, automatically assumed, since I worked with Bartley, that I would be the logical person to teach rumen metabolism. And when I started teaching rumen metabolism, uh, you know, I had to read a lot more about rumen than what I was doing research on before. Uh, and uh, and when, I was dis when I was reading about ruminal dysfunctions and came across the topic of liver abscess. And again, believe it or not, that's the first time I knew that liver abscess is a problem. I did not know that before. And when I read more and more about what was the information on liver abscess, I, you know, it intrigued me because here is a situ situation where a bacteria, a bacterial species that lives in the rumen of cattle and has a beneficial role to play in, in fermentation, in, in, rumen, in ruminal digestion, uh, is able to cross the rumen wall, get into the blood, and reach the liver, and becomes a pathogen, causes abscesses. And that really attracted my attention. And then I started uh, realizing that a lot more work needs to be done. And that's how I got started on it. Uh, so I wrote a proposal and submitted to a company, and they gave me money to start a project. So I had a PhD student at, at the time. And that's how my career, uh, uh, research career on liver abscess started because I was teaching a graduate course and I came across this topic. And the reason I say that that's, that's interesting is because I tell the graduate students, if you really want to be a good researcher, you have to be good, you have to be a teacher at the same time. You just cannot be a 100% researcher in which case you become specialized in one small, tiny area and you don't know anything about anything else. Whereas teaching allows you to keep up with what is happening in, the, in that 
uh, science uh, in the field. And that gives you a lot more ideas to do research uh, and find new problems to solve. So that's how I got started on my uh, liver abscess. Um, so let's start by uh, helping the audience understand a little bit more about why we care about liver abscesses, right? So what are some of the um, physiological ramifications on the animal and then maybe some of the economical ramifications to final heart carcass weight or things that the packers may not be happy about liver abscesses before we really get into some of the why they happen and how we might overcome them. The, the, uh, the importance of liver abscesses is a problem of feedlot cattle and uh, because of high grain feeding, you know, although it could happen in cattle in uh, grazing a lush grass or a pasture, uh, and uh, so it does not have to be entirely a high grain diet. It it does happen in other cattle too, but it's more common in in the cattle fed high grain diet, and uh, so the uh, the liver is uh, abscessed. And, and what is, uh, again, uh, uh, interesting is the animals that have liver abscess do not show any clinical signs whatsoever. So the only time we detect liver abscess is when the animals get slaughtered in the slaughterhouse. And the importance of this is, uh, you know, obviously an, a, an, a liver with an abscess or even a scar tissue uh, uh, gets condemned. And uh, that obviously impacts the uh, economics of a packer uh, in, in the industry. But that's a really a small uh, uh, part of the economic implication. The major impact is uh, uh, the, it affects the animal performance. Um, and the cattle with liver abscesses uh, don't eat as much. Uh, don't gain as much, and their feed efficiency is uh, reduced, and that is the really uh, major impact on the uh, on the uh, on the uh, the economics of the feedlot of the beef industry. Uh, in addition to that, uh, of uh, uh, the animal performance, it also impacts on uh, the carcass yield. And there is uh, sometimes the liver abscesses lead to adhesions uh, to the surrounding organs and tissues. And there is a lot of trimming that needs, needs to be done to get rid of the uh, abscess liver. And that, le that, le that leads to uh, reduced carcass yield. Uh, and sometimes it does affect the, uh, the, the, the quality of the beef too. Uh, so, so economically, uh, it affects, uh, uh, you know, one, there's liver condemnation. Second is animal performance is affected. And second, it impacts on the carcass yield. Well, there's kind of an interesting paradigm that we also see with liver abscesses and cattle performance, right? And that's actually that A pluses, which would be the highest, some of the big, maybe even open abscesses, things like that, those are very severe and they can definitely have detrimental 20, 30, 40 pounds reduction in hot carcass for that final finishing weight. Um, but having some small abscesses or scars, that would be suggestions of prior abscesses, smaller ones, 
oftentimes we actually see that in some of our best performing cattle. And so we've always kind of tried to balance this like knife's edge, right? To say, well, we want to push them hard enough that they're gaining the most optimally, most efficiently, but not so hard that we tip them over into too many abscesses because of all the negative impacts on that on trim and and the condemnation of the of the liver in the track. You're absolutely right on that, Stephanie. Uh, and so in the in the industry, you know, we categorize liver abscesses based on the size and number of abscesses in the liver into three categories, uh, like uh, A A minus and A plus. A plus would be the one that what you just described, which is uh, the liver has a large abscess or multiple small to medium-sized abscesses. And uh, whereas the A or A minus may have one small abscess or a couple of uh, small abscesses, medium-sized, maybe a scar tissue. Uh, the, uh, the A plus liver is the one that causes uh, significant impact on the, uh, on the animal performance and carcass yield. Uh, because the A-plus oftentimes leads to adhesion. And one of the organs that is very close to uh, the liver is diaphragm. And so even a small uh, adhesion leads to condemnation of diaphragm in the slaughterhouse. And that's a uh, uh, major uh, loss to the, uh, in terms of carcass yield. Uh, the, so the animals with uh, minor or mild abscesses, uh, one or two. In fact, they don't have any impact on the uh, uh, performance at all. They, they do as well as cattle with uh, no liver abscess. Sometimes, in fact, they do better than the ones with no liver abscess. And as you said, uh, you know, that's an indication that we have gotten the maximum out of cattle with our feeding program in terms of performance. So let's talk a little bit about some of your discoveries that you've made over the years. So talk to us a little bit about some of your identification of who might be the bacteria that are most likely to be found in abscesses. So we think they're the most likely suspects to be our, you know, our problem children here that have caused the situation. Um, and then we can kind of go from there and talk about some of the things that you've maybe learned over the years about maybe where the damage is occurring and maybe eventually how we might be able to help control it. Sure. Uh, the, the, uh, in, in fact, liver abscesses, we describe it as a polymicrobial infection, meaning uh, it's a mixed infection. It is not just caused by one bacterial species. Uh, but there is one that is, in, in our experience, is almost always we find it in the liver abscess. And that's the organism uh, called Fusobacterium necrophorum. Uh, it's an anaerobic organism like any other Roman bacteria. They live in the rumen, but not at a very high concentration. Its concentration is about uh, 100,000 to million cells per gram or per ml of rumen contents, whereas the dominant bacteria would be in billions, typically. Uh, but this fusobacterium, uh, as I said before, is a beneficial organism. And what it does, there are a couple of things it does in the rumen. Uh, one is to ferment lactic acid which is a product of starch, which is grain. Uh, so grain fermentation leads to lactic acid production. And because lactic acid is very acidic, it can bring down the pH lower than normal, in which case the rumen will go into acidosis. So 
So the lactic acid has to be metabolized as rapidly as it is produced to prevent the drop in rumen pH. Fusobacterium necrophorum is one of the bacterial species in the rumen that does that, takes lactic acid and converts that into uh, acetic, propionic, and butyric acids, which are weak, which are not as strong as lactic acid. They're not likely to lower the pH much. And those are the acids the animal can use for their metabolism. They get absorbed from the rumen and available for the animal tissue. So that's one of the fun one of the functions of fusobacterium to ferment lactic acid to prevent lactic acid accumulation. Second one is uh, it's it's, it's uh, it can digest proteins into peptides and amino acids, and then can take amino acids and ferment that into produce ammonia, and again acetic, propionic, and butyric acid depending on the amino acid. So it's an it's a protein digesting peptide and amino acid fermenting organism. In fact, among all the amino acids it ferments, uh, the one that is the dominant one is lysine. So we, we think Fusobacterium necrophorum is a major lysine fermenting organism in the rumen. As, as a nutritionist, you would recognize that lysine is a limiting amino acid, at least for dairy cows. Uh, so, uh, you know, the deaminating lysine will reduce uh, lysine availability to the animal. So in, in one way, that's a negative aspect of uh, 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 Fusobacterium necrophorum, that it, it breaks down lysine. But there are other ways of, uh, you know, preventing that from happening. So overall, it, it is beneficial. Uh, so what happens in, uh, uh, let, let me guess. so that's the, in my opinion, is a primary causative agent. Then we find another organism called Truparella pyogenes, uh, which used to be called Archaenobacterium pyogenes. And that species, the bacterial species has undergone three or four name changes in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, so Truparella pyogenes, in our experience, we find that in about 15 to 20% of the liver abscesses. And in some cases, uh, in some situations, its prevalence goes goes higher than 20-30%. And Truparellopagenes, we think, is a secondary organism. So in a way, it the Truparellopagenes and Fusobacterium necrophorum kind of have, they have a synergistic interaction. And, uh, and as to give an example of that synergy, uh, Truparellopagenes will produce lactic acid from glucose. And the lactic acid is a substrate for Fusobacterium necrophorum. So in a way, it feeds the Fusobacterium necrophorum. So that's why it's almost always associated with Fusobacterium necrophorum. Uh, in the number of other situations where we see those two bacteria together. So that's the second one. Uh, and then uh, about 15 years ago, uh, when you were looking, we were studying the, the bacteriology of liver abscess of uh, calf-fed Holsteins, uh, for our surprise, we for the first time we found this was in 2015, found Salmonella uh, organism, and uh, till 2015, believe it or not, uh, we have cultured thousands of liver abscesses, never found Salmonella, and the, for the first time we identified Salmonella. And my initial thought was maybe this is associated only with Holsteins. 
later when we looked at that study where we looked for salmonella, then we found in other cattle also, in the, the crossbreds also. So in our experience since then, uh, whenever we analyze liver abscess, we look for uh, Fusobacterium necrophorum, we look for Truparella pyogenes, and then we also look for Salmonella now. And we again, we find those Salmonella in about 25 to 30% of the liver abscesses. At this stage, uh, we don't know exactly whether Salmonella is a causative agent or it just happens to find a place to live and lives in liver, in abscess liver. Uh, and salmonella is a, you know, typically in a microbiology, we, we consider that as an aerobic organism. But because it lives in the gut, it can grow under anaerobic conditions as well. So it is, so it's, I'm not surprised it is able to grow and live in a liver abscess where we think it is anaerobic condition for Fusobacterium necrophorum uh, to be able to survive and, uh, and grow. So those three would be the top three organisms. Uh, but my opinion is uh, uh, the, the, the real causative agent is Fusobacterium necrophorum. So if you want to control liver abscess, our target should be on that organism. Okay, so I want to talk about methods to control Fuso in, in just one second. But my first thought when you talked about Fuso being a lactate utilizer was thinking about Megasphera elsdenii, right? And so my question is, is Fuso all, pretty much always present, whereas Megasphera takes a little bit of a lag time to come up in cattle as we transition to high starch diets? Is that part of the challenge here or... How do those two compare? Well, actually, you know, in, there are about five or six different species of rumen bacteria that can ferment lactic acid. And as you said, Megasphera elstinii, uh, and there's one other organism called Selenomonas ruminantium. Those two are, in fact, the dominant ruminal lactate fermenting organisms. And their numbers are uh, in billions particularly in cattle adapted to high grain diet. Whereas Fusobacterium necrophorum, as I told you before, their numbers are not that high. It's about 100,000 to a million, at the most 10 million cells per gram. So it's a lactate fermenting organism, uh, but its contribution to lactate fermentation is not as much as great as Megasphere elstinia and Sildomorphs ruminantium. Uh, so it, it is there, it does ferment, uh, but if we, if we get rid of it, in my opinion, it would not slow down lactate fermentation because there are still other bacteria that can metabolize lactic acid. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've done some work actually trying to create a vaccine against Fuso and tested that in cases or some folks have done that? Yes. In fact, uh, uh, when, when I started the research on liver abscess, uh, you know, at the time, uh, the, uh, there was no vaccine available at all. So my uh, initial goal was to, well, if it is a bacterial infection, we should be able to develop a vaccine. And uh, that's how my research on liver abscess started to look for a vaccine. But that has still have not been able to achieve an effective vaccine to uh, control liver abscess. At one time, we did have a vaccine. Uh, it was commercially available. Uh, this was in early 2000, and, but it could not compete with Tylosin, 
which is the which is the antibiotic that uh, feedlot industry uses to control liver abscess. So it went off the market, uh, and and uh, the efficacy of the vaccine was no better than antibiotic. In other words, uh, you know, uh, it, it did not completely eliminate the problem. It did not completely prevent it. There were still cattle getting abscessed even when they were vaccinated. So it, it, it reduced the prevalence, but did not eliminate the problem. So we are the, trying to improve that vaccine. So that's still my goal, that to develop a vaccine that is 100% effective. Uh, and if we, if we come up with that, that might solve liver abscess problem in the industry. But you know, obviously the reason why we have not been able to achieve is because it's a lot more complex than a simple one bacterium and make a vaccine with that bacterium. Right. That is, uh, honestly, liver abscesses is such an attractive thing to study from the outside looking in. And then I think once you dig into the literature and you realize that it's such a multifocal problem that or challenge, right, that it's like, is it a function of microbes living in the soil in the feedlot pen? Is it a function of the rest of the dietary components? Is it the function of the genetics of the animal that we have very little idea how host genetics are influencing some of those microbial populations? So um, let's talk a little bit about some of those factors. So um, what are some of the things that you have studied over the years or that others who have looked at liver abscess prevalence have used for approaches to try to figure out you know, what is causing some some pens of cattle, some sources of cattle, some feedlots to have greater prevalence of liver abscesses than others. So when we uh, started working on liver abscess, uh, you know, uh, and with the vaccine as the uh, my goal at the time, one of the one of the things I wanted to develop was a uh, an experimental model to induce liver abscess in cattle. Because that way we can test a product or test a vaccine. Otherwise, we had to go to a feed yard to test products or vaccination, and that would be expensive. Plus, you have no control on how many cattle will get liver abscess. So, one of my earlier uh, earliest uh, findings was that we could use ultrasonography, ultrasound, to detect liver abscesses uh, in cattle. Uh, as a as a diagnostic method, and uh, remember, I told you that the the cattle with liver abscess don't show any cl clinical signs. So when we walk into the feed yard, we don't know which animal has liver abscess, which one is not, till they get slaughtered. So we thought, you know, let us let us use let's see whether ultrasound could be used, and and we sh we showed that we could use it, but it is not hundred uh, percent. Uh, in, uh, I should say, in, in all cases, we, we can't detect liver abscess with ultrasound. If the liver abscess is present on the right side of the liver, and and uh, we can and we can scan that part of the liver which is exposed to the which is on the right side, below the skin muscles, easy to scan, easy to spot. But not all liver can be scanned by ultrasound because some of the liver lobes are covered by lungs. And obviously, the liver on the visceral side uh, uh, will have a, uh, on the left side of the liver. If it is abscessed, ultrasound will not pick it up. So what we showed was ultrasound. If you if you see an abscess, then you know it is abscessed. If you do not see it, does not mean the liver is not abscessed. 
So there are a lot of false uh, uh, negatives. But when we were scanning the liver, uh, we were able to detect the portal vein very prominently. And that gave us an idea, you know, maybe we can use this to inject fusobacterium directly into portal blood. And because the distance from the skin to the portal vein is about maybe four to five inches at the most. So we took a six inches long uh, needle and we were able to uh, tap into the portal vein, then insert a catheter. And, and you could do this all by watching the, uh, scanning the liver on an ultrasound. That way you can see the needle going in, you can see the catheter uh, uh, being inserted, and then we can inject the bacteria directly into the portal blood. And we were able to, and those cattle developed abscesses with Within, within three to four days after that, what we call ultrasound guided uh, intraportal inoculation method. So that's how we were able to uh, use that model uh, to, to test some of the vaccines we had developed at the time. That way we don't have to wait to, to go to feed yard to wait for three, four months before we see the results. So that was a major finding and, uh, and, and also that gave us uh, a uh, lot more information about how liver abscesses are induced and uh, uh, as to how a bacterium that is beneficial can go to the liver, can become a pathogen. Uh, so that was a major finding. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the other uh, uh, major finding would be in order to understand how we have, what we call pathogenesis, how a bacterium can cause infection. You know, if you think of, if you, if, you, if uh, uh, the liver, as you know, uh, is in my, uh, is a very defensed organ. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of blood flow, a lot of white blood cells flowing into the liver. And the liver is loaded with uh, macrophages, the Kufer cells. So liver is a very protected organ which is the reason why it can detoxify a number of things. Uh, and uh, so the question I asked was, how could a bacterium survive in the liver, an anaerobe survive in the liver? Because liver is highly oxygenated. And so that led us to look for how the mechanism by which an anaerobe can survive. And uh, so thought about uh, what kind of virulence factors the bacteria has to produce to be able to withstand the, the defense mechanism of the liver. And uh, there was a uh, indication that it produces a protein exotoxin uh, that kills white blood cells uh, that, are, that are cytolytic to white blood cells as well as Kufer cells. So the protein is called leukotoxin because it affects leukocytes. And it also is a gram-negative organism, so it does have endotoxin. And so endotoxin can contribute to inflammation of the, uh, of the infected tissue or organ. So the reason why the, an anaerobe can go to an organ that is highly aerobic and survive and grow and cause infection is because of leukotoxin. So that gave an idea, why not we use leukotoxin, which is a protein, 
meaning antigenic. Why not we make a vaccine with leukotoxin in it? That way the animal will produce antibodies against leukotoxin. So if the fusobacterium goes to the liver, releases leukotoxin, antibodies can neutralize it, and then the liver can handle the bacteria. So that was the concept behind our uh, vaccine that we developed based on what we call leukotoxoid vaccine, meaning a leukotoxin that was inactivated to lose its biological activity, but retain its antigenicity. Um, so that, so, so we had to uh, screen number of fusobacterium necrophorum strains and identify a strain that uh, produces a lot of leukotoxin because the amount of leukotoxin they produce varies from strain to strain within a species. So we were able to uh, get a patent for that strain uh, that produces a lot of leukotoxin. Then we have had to conduct studies to uh, optimize leukotoxin production. You know, the right medium, right culture conditions, right duration of incubation, uh, that where there's maximal production of leukotoxin. And, uh, and then we had, to, in order to test our theory, that if we have leukotoxin as an antigen, we can prevent liver abscess, we had to develop the liver abscess model to test it. That's how we used ultrasound. And uh, so that's how we were able to uh, uh, develop a vaccine that, that could be used to prevent liver abscess. And the fact that it is not 100% effective means there are other factors involved besides fusobacterium necrophorum and leukotoxin alone. And that's what we are focusing on these days. So is leukotoxin, would it only be, pre, be produced locally in the liver or is it something that you might expect to pick up like in a systemic blood sample? I, I think uh, the leukotoxin uh, is produced locally. I'm sure it is produced in the rumen. Uh, because it's a protein, it will get digested right away. But the the effect of leukotoxin would would, would only be uh, uh, would only make sense if the organism is in a tissue. So in the from the rumen contents, Fusobacterium necrophorum first gains entrance into the rumen tissue, rumen wall, and we think it grows in the rumen epithelium. And you see, the reason why it's able to grow is because it can, again, prevent phagocytosis by producing leukotoxin. Remember I told you the, the fusobacterium necrophorum in the rumen is very low concentration. But what happens when it goes into the rumen epithelium is it grows and the concentration goes up, increases. In a way, I call rumen, uh, the rumenitis that, that results from that infection is a prerequisite for for the bacteria to go into the liver to cause liver abscess. Uh, and, and so the, one of the reasons why the bacteria can go into the rumen epithelium is because the rumen epithelium is somewhat damaged. And that damage happens because of acidosis. So the reason why we think ruminal acidosis uh, and subsequent ruminitis are predisposing factors to cause liver abscess. So that's why most nutritionists, feedlot nutritionists, they lump uh, acidosis, ruminitis, liver abscess as one syndrome. You know, they call rumen, you know, acidosis, ruminitis, liver abscess complex. 
because the acidosis leads to ruminitis, ruminitis leads to uh, the liver abscess. We don't see leukotoxin in the blood of cattle, but we see antibodies against leukotoxin in the blood. So in fact, I thought maybe we could use a leukotoxin antibody titer as an indicator of whether animal is abscessed or not as a, as a potential diagnostic uh, test. Uh, we found out that there was not much correlation between antibody titer and liver abscess. And that may simply because it, you know, it's in the rumen, it's in the rumen epithelium if there's ruminitis. So the an animal could not have a liver abscess, but could have still have ruminitis. So there will be antibodies against that. And and also you said uh, you know, a few minutes ago that it's uh, uh, it, the soil and Fusobacterium necrophorum is also in the soil. So, but we don't know whether it's a soil bacterium or soil got contaminated from the manure because Fusobacterium is in the, in the rumen, it's in the feces, in the manure. Hence, soil is contaminated, uh, which is also the reason why uh, the same organism causes foot infection in cattle, foot rot. So it's the same causative agent uh, that Fusobacterium necrophorum causes foot rot, causes liver abscess. And there's one other infection in cattle that we see caused by the same organism, there's calf diphtheria, which is a necrotic laryngitis, typically seen in one or two year old, uh, or one year, typically one year old calves. The, and it's also part of the normal flora of the mouth of cattle. So, so in a way, it, it's uh, it's present in the mouth, it's present in the GI tract, it's present in the soil. Uh, so that's why in, in most cases we call that uh, in a liver abscess as an endogenous infection because the organism is already in the animal. It just comes into the liver to cause abscess. So when you had your vaccine against Fuso, did you also see reduction in foot rot? In, in, in fact, uh, uh, at, the, at the time, uh, the company did, had some evidence to indicate uh, foot rot was reduced, but they did not get a label claim for foot rot. So it was not, it was never uh, uh, meant for foot rot because the, there was no study done to uh, show the efficacy in a foot rot control. But I think any vaccine, if, if you were to develop a effective vaccine against uh, liver abscess, uh, I'm 100% I'm confident it will reduce foot rot. Well, it's really interesting, right? Because like where I am in the Upper Plains, we largely do not feed tylosin in the diet because we're, our rations don't include steam flight corn. They're not quite as hot, right? They're not quite as calorically dense, maybe as some of the Southern Plains rations. Um, but we definitely have foot rot issues, right? Especially as we think about a part of the country that's wetter. Um, we have deep bedded pits. We have other you know, slatted floors where we get maybe more physical damage to the hoof. We create opportunity for that infection to occur. So that's really interesting. I had not realized the connection that Fuso was a part of uh, the foot rot problem. Absolutely. So. Okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room, and that is these dairy beef creatures that are hitting the feedlot now, right? So we're just starting to learn a little bit about some of the prevalence of liver abscesses in them. And, and I would definitely say that we don't have enough data yet on that. 
But what is your thoughts on, you know, are we likely to see a lot more liver abscesses in these calves that come from dairy cows, but have been used for, you know, beef semen? So tell us your thoughts on dairy beef. Well, you know, uh, I, I just got exposed to that part of the industry two years ago, uh, the, the beef on dairy. Uh, and uh, uh, as you said, uh, you know, there's not much data available. Uh, in fact, all the uh, report about uh, liver abscess, higher liver abscess incidence in beef on dairy. Uh, the estimate is about uh, two to three times more than uh, the crossbred beef cattle, which means about 60 to 70% of those cattle will have liver abscess. All those reports are anecdotal <laughs> and there's no published data. And that's why we have started working on that, uh, those, those animals, those cattle. Uh, and I think one of the reasons, in a way, beef on dairy uh, is similar to calf-fed Holsteins in the sense that, uh, you know, you take those male Holstein calves and right after weaning, uh, they are exposed to high-grain diet with uh, very little roughage. And they're on a high-grain diet for uh, almost 300 to 350 days. Uh, compared to an average 150 days, 160 days for beef crossbred beef cattle. So same thing happens to beef on dairy. Uh, so they're given in a uh, diet that is highly fermentable right after weaning, not much roughage. And from the calf, from the calf ranch, they go to the, typically they go to, they go to the grower yard where they may get little more roughage and then they end up in the feedlot. So by the time they're born, till they reach uh, uh, feedlot slaughter, about 300 to 350 days, uh, and most of those time they are on a high grain, or, or grain diet with less roughage, a little roughage. So I think uh, the the major reason why we see liver abscess, high liver abscess, is because days on feeding lot higher than, longer than most beef cattle. So as a result, there is more chance for uh, acidosis, more chance for ruminitis, and that's the reason why we see more liver abscesses. And that's what we think it is. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly whether there are other factors besides just on days and feeding is responsible for higher incidence. We don't know that. And one of the things we are doing right now is uh, to look at the bacteriology of liver abscess of beef on dairy to see is there anything different in those cattle compared to crossbred beef cattle. So at least we can rule out it is not because of there are different bacterial species involved uh, in, in causing liver abscess. Do you know if on dairy cows, if we think about like whenever a mature Holstein cow gets culled from the dairy operation, do they have liver abscesses? Is is it liver abscesses more prevalent in dairy cows, period? In fact, uh, uh, you know, there are a couple of studies done to look at uh, liver abscess prevalence. In fact, I was involved in one of those about 20 years ago. The culled dairy cows that are slaughtered for beef, uh, they do have liver abscess. In fact, uh, the prevalence is about the same as in feedlot cattle. 25 to 30% of them have uh, the uh, liver abscess. Remember, these cattle don't get tylosin. You know, uh, 
where we can feed thalassitic feedlot cattle. And I think, uh, you know, because uh, dairy, you know, they go through that change in feeding. When they're, uh, uh, you know, lactating, they get a high grain, you know, although there's enough roughage, but their feed intake is much higher than most cattle. And then uh, when, when the, uh, when they're pregnant and uh, uh, not lactating, uh, they're typically given a high forage diet. Then when right after parturition uh, and they get more grain. So they go through a lot of those changes, major uh, dramatic changes in the diet uh, in their life cycle. And I think those kind of, those may be the reasons why they do develop liver abscesses. And, well, and I think if we tie it back to our earlier conversation where we, you know, kind of think about the beef cattle that had some abscesses, but not A plus abscesses do have better overall performance. Is that kind of potentially the same thing happening on the dairy cow? Because, you know, the dairy cow is basically a metabolic racehorse, right? Like she's been, you know, and like you said, she has huge intake. She has huge metabolic demands on her. She's outputting all that milk. You know, that'd be really interesting to see if we could tie back that prevalence to, you know, milk yield or milk efficiency or whatever the dairy people would use for a metric. Right. You know, that's an interesting observation. But I don't think anybody's looked at it, you know, whether uh, any relationship between cattle with, with that had one or two abscesses uh, after the current to go back and look at that lactation cycle and milk production uh, data. Uh, so it, it is possible, uh, again, uh, you know, if you see one or two miles abscesses, again, indicates the animal was performing at its peak at the best it could do. Right. So as we approach the end of our time together here, I want to give you the opportunity to answer this question. And that is, what are you most excited about right now in the field of liver abscesses? What do you think is the the thing that might be just around the corner for discovery? Well, uh, you know, obviously vaccine is still the, uh, the ultimate goal. Uh, because if, if you have an effective vaccine, you know, it's easy to administer, uh, then it would replace use of an antibiotic in the industry. Uh, because talosin, as you know, is uh, what we consider as a medically important antibiotic. Because uh, although talosin is not used in uh, humans, an, an antibiotic very similar to talosin is erythromycin, widely used in, uh, in, in, in humans. So obviously the, the the vaccine is still my uh, my my dream uh, uh, intervention strategy uh, if we can accomplish that. But one of the things uh, uh, we are working on right now is to see you know we we talk about Fusobacterium necrophorum from rumen acidosis ruminitis. The question that that have been asked often is the hindcut of cattle. Uh, and, and a lot of nutritionists would agree when, when you feed a high grain diet, uh, and it, uh, particularly as you said, uh, in a steam flayed corn uh, or any fermentable grain, the, the acidosis could also extend to the hindgut because hindgut is exactly like rumen, uh, except it is less buffered uh, than rumen is. And so we could potentially be creating hindgut acidosis. Uh, and in fact, some nutritionists believe that may be the real problem, not the ruminal acidosis. 
And we have shown, uh, we have found that Fusobatum necrophorum also lives in the colon of cattle. So the question is, could hindgut also be the source of bacteria that come to the liver to cause liver abscess? And we don't know the answer to that yet. We are working on it. And some of the data that we have generated so far indicates it, that, that hindgut does seem to have a role. Uh, and the reason why it's important is because if you know hindgut could also be the source, so we have one more target to look for intervention to prevent uh, fusobacterium from crossing the hindgut epithelium to come to the portal, because all the blood from the GI tract, as you know, has to go through the liver. So it does not matter whether the fusobacterium is in the rumen or in the hindgut, they end up in the liver to cause liver abscess. So that's the, uh, the uh, in, in a way, uh, a, project, a study that we are doing to answer a question that has been frequently asked, does hindgut have any role to play in liver abscess? The, the second uh, uh, interesting aspect of uh, uh, our finding, of, of our study is uh, the Fusobacterium necrophorum uh, in a species but there are two different types of Fusobacterium necrophorum. Uh, and one type, and these are called biotypes, used to be uh, called biotypes. Now we have given a subspecies name. You know, those names are not that important. Anyway, of the two types, uh, there's only one that is frequently found in liver abscess, not the other one. And we call it subspecies necrophorum or biotype A. That's the one that produces more leukotoxin than the other type. And that's the reason why it causes liver abscess. Whereas the subspecies fundiliform or biotype B does not produce leukotoxin, so it does not cause liver abscess. So th that lives in the rumen. And we were using culture method to, to uh, enumerate those population of those bacteria or to identify them. So recently we have developed a PCR assay that can distinguish between those two sub those two subspecies or biotypes. What we found into our surprise was not all cattle rumen contains the type of fuso that causes liver abscess. So only about, uh, at the most, 50% of the cattle contain that organism. Other 50% don't. So when when you say we, when we say we, we should target Fusobacterium necrophorum to prevent liver abscess, uh, now I would say we should target that type of Fusobacterium that causes liver abscess, not the other type. The other type is beneficial. So the subspecies necrophorum or biotype A is the real pathogen, real culprit in causing liver abscess. So our focus in uh, uh, Preventing liver abscess should focus on or should uh, target the, the subspecies necrophorum, the one that causes liver abscess. Now, what we don't know is why only some cattle have, others don't. And I, I still don't know whether the cattle that have this are the ones that develop liver abscess and the ones that don't have don't develop liver abscess. We don't know that. Because those are the studies we need to do uh, uh, in order to you know, come up with a little more understanding of liver abscess. Again, the bottom line, Stephanie, is, uh, and I tell this to many, I've been working on this problem for the past 30, 35 years. We are still trying to find out 
are finding out new things that we did not know before. In, in a way, that's about that's what research is, right? So when you you ask a question, you design a study to find an answer. A lot of times, you find an answer, but you also raise two or three more questions, and and that's how the research keeps continuing. So, 35 years of uh, liver abscess, there are still unanswered questions about liver abscess. Absolutely. Well, I think that was a really great recap. And I guess I would just, you know, say for our listeners, just practical ways to prevent liver abscesses, going back to what TG has talked about, tylosin, if that's an availability, if you're more in the steam flake diets, managing roughage levels, and then bunk management, anything that's going to prevent these bouts of acidosis that might cause gut damage. And just to help listeners understand too, I'm totally in the camp that thinks that hindgut uh, damage might be more impactful than rumen because rumen is basically as tough as shoe leather. It's got multiple layers of cells, um, you know, a dozen plus layers of cells, whereas we've got single cell layer of protection by the time we get to the hindgut places like the colon or pieces of the small intestine and stuff, right? So I totally believe that it seems so much more susceptible and some of the work we've done looking at like zinc supplementation to overcome gut barrier issues potentially has some positive impacts there on liver abscesses. So it's so cool to see, to hear from you, you know, the story of Fuso and kind of how that has evolved across your career. It's time for our famous three. Okay, so we've reached that point of the episode where we've got our three famous questions. So these are the questions we ask of all of our guests. So our first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? In, in terms of beef research? It could be anything. We've heard the NRC. We've heard recipes. We've, you know, <laughs> any, just, uh, we've heard um, what we've had. We've had some like station reports or, you know, beef uh, department reports. So where's your favorite place to go to, to find information about beef? You know, I, I do read uh, uh, the, the beef, the industry magazines on beef, uh, the beef, the feedlot uh, uh, industry. Uh you know, because I'm a researcher, uh, you know, obviously I track uh, research publications uh, that deal with beef cattle and anything to do with the GI tract uh, would be would, would uh, interest me to read it. Uh, I, again, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, this is another uh, uh, lesson I try to teach my graduate students that if you want to be a good researcher, you have to read and learn about what others are doing in your area. And more you read about the more ideas you get about how to do or what to do in terms of research. Perfectly. You've teed us up excellently for our second question is, what is something not related to beef that you're reading right now? You know, uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm not reading any book uh, now, but I tell you, the, 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 my, my most favorite reading every day uh, is New York Times. And because uh, it's available online, I can get that on my iPad. I spend about half an hour every day to read about read the New York Times. And New York Times covers a lot of topics of interest. Uh, you know, for example, just a few weeks ago, I read about ChatGPT for the first time. I understood what the, 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 the AI and its impact on education as an example. Uh, uh, used to be a voracious reader of books one time, particularly when I'm traveling, I like to carry a book and read. But these days I carry my laptop and work on it, so which is unfortunate. 
as the graduate students say, the graduate students start their presentations two weeks before the meeting. The professor, we're typing the presentation on the plane to the meeting, right? Sure. Yeah, that, that's, that's how it works most of the time. So. Okay, third and final question for you here is, what is a trait of someone you know that has helped them be successful? You know, uh, I, I thought about that question. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, my mentor I told you about in the beginning, Earl uh, Bartley, uh, he was a, a dairy cattle nutritionist and, uh, and a top-notch scientist, uh, very well-established name at the time. And I watched him as a, my mentor, how he interacted with graduate students, watched uh, how he interacted with the colleagues. And the trait I learned from him is uh, how to be collaborative, how to bring people with the different expertise into uh, one room and uh, discuss the project that you're working on to get input and get uh, ideas. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that, that importance of collaboration in research, I learned from him, and he was very good in uh, uh, interacting with uh, uh, with veterinarians, with grain scientists, uh, and with statisticians. And uh, so, a lot of my uh, my the, my mentoring style, uh, my enthusiasm in research, uh, uh, I learned from him, uh, Bartley. So I give him a lot of credit. And whenever I teach human metabolism, I spend about 10 minutes to talk about my mentor uh, because that impression that he created at the time and and I, my dream job at the time was to be like him. I should be a professor, have my own lab, my own lab technicians, my own graduate students have projects to work on. Uh, I think to some extent I've accomplished that. And he was the my, uh, I should say, uh, the the person who helped me develop into a scientist. Well, I think that is an excellent way to end our time together, TG. It's been so great talking with you today and we've really appreciated your time. Well, my pleasure, Stephanie. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this.